you know, when I was a kid, I, uh, I came down with the chicken pox. Now, the real bummer about the chicken pox for me as a kid was not that just I had the chicken pox, but I got the chicken pox the day school let out for spring break. So I missed spring break, and I, the only benefit of having the chicken pox is missing school, and I was better just when spring break was over. And I remember standing in our den in Lubbock, and we had this big window, and all the kids in the neighborhood used to come to our house to play football in the front yard. And I remember right in the middle of spring break, standing in our den, looking out the window, looking, looking at all these kids running and tackling and praying and or playing and climbing trees. And I remember thinking, how did my life get so bad? Why me? And I think that many followers of Jesus Christ live like that. We look out the window of our life at people who have joy, at people who seem to have freedom, at people who have a love for Christ, at people who seem to be blessed, and think, why me? Why is there a discrepancy between those followers of Jesus Christ and me? Or even, we look at the Word of God, at the promises of Jesus, when He said, I have come so that you might have life and life more abundantly, and we think, where is my abundant life? I have come to set you free, and if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. And yet there's this sin pattern that you just can't escape from. Why is that? We're going to discover something this morning as we are in this series called Breaking Free, something the Bible calls a foothold or a stronghold that Satan can get in our lives. We know it today, you, you, you may know it today as, as addictions, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medication, but oftentimes we medicate and medicate and medicate when in actuality the root is a spiritual source. It's an open door we gave to the enemy, an opportunity we gave to an enemy, a, and he's developed a stronghold, a foothold in our life, and today we can walk in freedom. But in order to walk in freedom from this thing called strongholds or footholds in our life or an area of bondage in our life, we have to understand something about the theology of authority. So I am going to open up with a verse from Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and look at the book of Colossians. General Electric Power Company, GEPC, that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that's how I memorized it. We're going to be in the book of Colossians for our, our process, our steps to walk in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us on the cross and won for us through the empty tomb. Uh, the book of Colossians is going to outline our pattern from our sin patterns, the shadows, the bondage that you might be in, into walking in complete freedom. As I was studying the theology of authority, my excitement to teach this grew because I really believe this is going to help you so much. And I believe that it's going to open your eyes to quite a bit. But we're going to back up and really unpack the theology of authority, and then we will walk into our, our outline, our, our footsteps from bondage to freedom that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, outlines for us in the book of Colossians. So in understanding the theology of authority, let's start with Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. Now this is a statement made from a Roman centurion. This is a Roman captain. He's over about a hundred soldiers. So he's got guys under him, and he's got guys over him. 
So this is a guy, he was probably born and raised in a military family, and he grew up in the military. He's in Rome. He's a soldier. Now he's in Israel. He knows war. He knows battle. He's a centurion. He's a good soldier. He's moved up the ranks. Well, he's a compassionate man. And he has a servant in his household that's sick. So here this Roman is in Israel, and he understands authority, he understands the military, he understands there's people over him, he understands there's people under him, he has a compassionate heart, he has a servant who's sick, and in Israel, he hears about this young rabbi named Jesus, and the crowds are flocking to him, and he hears that Jesus is healing people of their sicknesses, of leprosy, of blindness, of of being paralyzed, and even of, of, from, from death to life. So he sends Jesus a word. He sends a messenger to Jesus. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. And by the way, to my recollection anyway, this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus sees somebody's faith and he goes, wow, that's awesome. And it happens to be not a Hebrew who worships Yahweh, but a Gentile Roman soldier. Matthew chapter 8. And the reason that Jesus said, wow, about this guy's faith is because this guy understood the theology of authority. This man sends a word to Jesus. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. Well, in verse 8, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come into my household, but I have a servant that's sick. So just say the word. All you have to do is say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. And he has this faith in Jesus. You don't even have to come lay hands on him to pray for him. Where you are, in the street, right now, just say the word, and my servant is healed. And he goes on to say in verse 9, For I too am a man, watch this, under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And to that, Jesus said, Wow. Go tell your master your servant is healed. And he was healed at that very hour. Notice that this centurion didn't say, I too am a man over authority. He said, I'm a man under authority. Because he understood that if he ever stopped submitting to his generals, then his soldiers would not have to submit to him. He's in the military. And if he ever got out of alignment of his authority, then that authority stopped. But because he was submissive to the authority over him, he had all the authority of Rome behind him. Therefore, he had authority beneath him. Now, when Jesus ministered, we see all throughout the Gospels, this is just a small sample of it, Jesus ministered with incredible authority. And when Jesus taught, they would listen to him, and they would consistently, repeatedly remark, wow, there's something different about him than any other teacher we've ever heard, because he's teaching as one who has, listen to this word, authority. One time Jesus was in a storm. The winds and the waves arose, and Jesus said, peace, be still, and they were amazed Because they said, even the winds and the waves obey him. He was somebody who functioned with authority. Authority characterized Jesus' ministry. He would be confronted by demons. 
He would tell the demons to shut up, and they would shut up. He would drive the demons out, and they would be driven out. On one particular occasion, Jesus said to somebody, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leadership was in an uproar, and they said, who is this to forgive sins? And Jesus responded, so that you may know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, and the man was crippled, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But so you know, I have the authority to forgive sins, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the guy jumped up, leaping and dancing. Jesus functioned with incredible authority. On one particular occasion, his good friend Lazarus had died. Mary and Martha sent word, he's sick. Uh, come quickly. Jesus intentionally allowed him to die. He showed up at the funeral four days after the death. Unfashionably late would be an understatement. This was in his sovereign plan to make a demonstration to everybody that he has authority even over a death and that his authority came from his father. Jesus said four days after the death at the funeral, Jesus said to them, Truly, true, I say to you, or he said to them, so that you may know, Father, that these may know that you sent me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. I know that you always hear my prayer. And with that, he said to the dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And all of that to say, Jesus is God. And so we see Jesus functioning with this authority, and we think, yeah. But he's God, I'm just me. He's supposed to calm the storms. He's supposed to raise the dead. He's supposed to speak with incredible authority. Jesus is God. Jesus is 100% God. And as a result of the manger in Bethlehem, Jesus became 100% man. Jesus wasn't uh, half God and half man. That would make him more than a man, and that would make him less than God. He was 100% man and 100% God. This is a core doctrine in our faith, his dual nature. As God, Jesus could have walked on water of his own power. As God, Jesus could have cast out demons of his own power. He could have raised the dead of his own power. He could have spoken of his own power and manifested that incredible authority. But we realize that in Philippians chapter 2, that when Jesus, God, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he walked among us for 33 years, he did not surrender his deity. He did not surrender his Godhead. But he did take that power that's within and of himself, and he left it in heaven. And when he functioned, he functioned as a 100% man. And the power that he operated in was the power of the Holy Spirit as he was submissive to his Father in heaven. And he operated not in his own power, though he's 100% God. He operated in his Father's power through the Holy Spirit to show us, the church, how we can function as well. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 9, Truly, truly, I say to you, that the Son can do nothing of His own accord. Now, He could have, but in what we call the incarnation, God becoming flesh. He chose to do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing, for what the Father does, the Son does likewise. 
And this is how Jesus functioned to show us how that we can function as long as we are under this authority. You see, in the temptation, it was so much more in the wilderness after Jesus fasted 40 days when he was tempted by Satan. It was so much more than simply getting Jesus to stumble up and sin, which he didn't. He lived 33 years on this earth and was assaulted with temptation every second more than any of us could ever imagine. He was tempted in every way as you are. He gets it. He's compassionate towards you, yet he never sinned. And the temptation was so much more than to just get Jesus to stumble up. The temptation was to get Jesus to step out from underneath his father's authority. So, let me make four observations about authority. Biblically, as we develop this theology of authority. And then let's talk about how we can walk in this authority. First observation is this. And by the way, um, in prefacing our, our, our steps to breaking free in Colossians, I'm really unpacking this theology of authority. And so I'm flying through some verses. So in the lobby on your way out, there's a sheet with the verses on it. You can take notes on the back of your bulletin, but there's also a sheet with these verses on it so that you can take that with you and study these. The first observation about authority is this. God delegated authority to mankind in the Garden of Eden. So the authority that he delegated to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was not an inherent authority. It was not an authority in and of themselves, but it was a delegated authority to them. Again, though Jesus, God in the flesh, had inherent authority in and of himself, he chose not to function in it, but rather he chose to function in the delegated authority from the Father to him through the Holy Spirit to show us how to live, to show us what we're capable of as followers of Jesus Christ. Then God said in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, he made creation, he made Adam and Eve, Then God, watch this, he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, this is authority, other translations would say, rule the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the earth. God blessed Adam and Eve, this is mankind, and he gave them the keys to earth. And he said, multiply, because their offspring would worship God. Not not go get people saved, because at this point, nobody's lost. But multiply, so that everybody who's born will be worshipers of God. God will receive glory, and their hearts will be alive. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. Rule, he told them. Rule. Have dominion. So the first observation as we unpack our theology of authority is this. God delegated authority to mankind in the garden. Second observation is this. Satan, who has an insatiable lust for power, caused Adam and Eve to fumble their designated authority, and he picked it up himself. Jesus said of Satan, he's the father of lies. When he speaks, he lies, and when he lies, he's speaking his native language. 
He's the master of manipulation. He's the dark lord of deception. This is Satan. Now, when Satan was in heaven and he started out as an angel, we don't know how many angels there are. Billions, no doubt. And throughout Scripture, we see three angels' names mentioned. And they each seem to be uh, the vice president, so to speak, of a particular department in heaven. We see Gabriel. And any time Gabriel is mentioned in Scripture, it's usually with a message. And so we ascertain that Gabriel is a, what we call an archangel, a VP angel or archangel. And he's, he's probably in charge of communications. And then we see Michael. And any time we see Michael, this archangel, this warring angel... Uh, there's usually a connotation of war, and uh, there's empires that are fighting one another, and there's an angelic realm, uh, things moving and shaking and happening, and uh, Michael is probably the angel of, of war in heaven. And then there's Lucifer, which was Satan's name in heaven. We read about him in Isaiah chapter 14. The Bible calls him the bright morning star. And he was probably the most beautiful and the most powerful of all the angels. And most commentaries would agree that in heaven, before he was kicked out of heaven, he was over worship, exalting God. But Satan had this insatiable lust for power, and he wanted God's authority. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 14, that he would worship God with his words but his heart wasn't with him. And he was over a third of all of the angels in heaven. And we read in Isaiah chapter 14, the five I will statements of heaven. I will be like God. I will exalt myself over God. I will, I will, I will. And then Jesus says of Lucifer, I saw Satan cast from heaven like a bolt of lightning to this earth. And a third of the angels came with him. So if he tried to take God's authority from him in heaven. And if he tried to take Christ's authority from him in the temptation in the wilderness, don't you know that when God delegated his authority to Adam and Eve to rule and subdue the earth, that he was going to have a focus on that authority and to try to take that authority from them and that's exactly what he did what he was unable to do in heaven what he was unable to do in Jesus in the wilderness he did with Adam and Eve in the fall that's why Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10 that Satan is a thief and he comes to kill to steal and to, to, and to destroy he wants to kill your joy. He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to kill God's purposes in your life. He wants to kill the fruit of the Spirit, the peace, joy, and love. And he wants to steal the authority that God has rightfully entrusted to you. So in the Garden of Eden, God delegated his authority to mankind. And then Satan saw that with this insatiable lust for authority. And kind of like in football, if a defensive back, if a linebacker hits the runner so hard, they fumble the ball, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve more than simply sinned. They stepped out of alignment. They stepped out from underneath the authority of God. And they fumbled their authority. And Satan picked it up. Which is why we read now in the New Testament that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
Mankind was supposed to be the prince of the power of the air, but mankind forfeited that authority at the fall in the Garden of Eden, and Satan picked it up, and now Satan and his demons are the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. For example, have you ever seen a policeman on a busy day out in the middle of the street directing traffic? All the guy has to do is raise his hand and cars stop. Why, is he that strong? Is he like Superman? I mean, can he just stop a car if he wants to? No, he has no inherent power in and of himself, but he has delegated authority. And through that delegated authority, he can stop the cars. And in the same way, mankind had no inherent power in and of ourselves to conquer and to subdue, but we had delegated authority from God. But what happens if that police officer stops submitting to the authority over him? He loses his badge, and he loses his authority on the streets. So then he can go stand in the streets, and he can raise his hand, and nobody's going to stop because he doesn't have the badge. He has no delegated authority. Have you ever known somebody that had authority issues? Have you ever worked with somebody that had authority issues? They're pleasant to be around, aren't they? They're not humble. They're not teachable, they're not reliable, and they're destructive enough that whether it's in the vocational or even the church realm, you've eventually got to let them go. And though they now no longer have authority, they still have power, and since they have authority issues, they continue to function in that power to kill, steal, and destroy through deception and manipulation and politics and whatever it might be. Well, mankind lost our authority in the garden, and Satan picked it up, and his authority is illegitimate, but he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the next observation about authority is this. Christ destroyed Satan's authority at the cross and returned it to his new creation, the church. You see the parallel between the Garden of Eden and the New Testament? In the Garden of Eden, authority was delegated to mankind. We fumbled the ball, and Satan picked it up and is the ruler of this earth. And at the cross of Christ, Jesus pulmoted Satan, and the ball flew up, and Satan lost all authority. And then he picks that authority up, and he now gives it back to the church. And right there in the book of Genesis, in the fall, we see a prophetic foreshadowing of this. Jesus looks at Satan And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Who is her offspring? This is a prophetic shadowing, no different than Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Isaiah 9. This is a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. This is a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus. And then watch this Genesis picture of the cross. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What is this? This is at the cross of Christ. God the Father says to Satan, there will be a seed that is born, and his name's Jesus. And you'll crush his heel. You'll you'll strike his heel, you serpent. You'll strike his heel. You'll wound him, as Jesus was wounded on the cross. But in so doing, he's going to crush your head. And we can add a suffix to head. He's going to crush your headship. 
He's going to crush your authority. He's going to crush all weight and influence that you can wield in this earth. And at the cross of Christ and through the empty tomb, Jesus indeed crushed the kingdom of darkness and sin and death. And then he picked the authority that Jesus lost back up and he gives it to his new creation. And that new creation is the church. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10 verse 18, Behold, I have given you authority. The Greek word, exousia. I have given you authority to tread and serpents, to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power, the Greek word, dunamis, dunamis, of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Dunamis is an inherent authority of our own. Exousia is a delegated authority. And so Jesus is saying, I have given you delegated authority so that you can crush the inherent authority in this world and over all the evil powers. And in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19, Jesus said to his followers shortly after the resurrection, and he says to every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ today, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. It's a delegated authority. Go, therefore. It's a delegated authority to be the light of the world. It's a delegated authority to cast out demons. It's a delegated authority to heal. It's a delegated authority to proclaim the gospel so that hearts are melted and eyes are open and people come to eternal life. It's a delegated authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So we see in the Garden of Eden that authority was delegated to mankind. And Satan, with this insatiable lust for authority, hit Adam and Eve in the fall. They fumbled the authority. He picked it up. At the cross of Christ, Jesus paid for our sins, and he conquered death. Three days later, Satan fumbled the authority back. Jesus picked it up, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now he gives it to the church, that's you and and me, and he says, go, therefore. This is why we can move mountains. This is why we have abundant life. Because Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has delegated authority over all the darkness in our life. We have delegated authority over all addiction, over all oppression, over all bondage, over all mountains that block our path. We have delegated authority. And Satan has no authority over us whatsoever. So why then? Do we say, I see what Scripture says about having life and life more abundantly, but there's a discrepancy between those promises and my life. Why are there sin patterns that some followers of Jesus Christ just can't break free from? Why are some of you locked in some secret sin that you continually go back into? If we have all authority and the Spirit of Christ is living in us, then Why don't we experience the freedom and the power and the authority and the divine momentum and the blessings upon our life that God promises and that you know in your heart of hearts that you should be functioning in, but you're not? 
And we look at this and we say, yeah, I get it, I get it. I mean, Satan lost all authority, the the empty tomb. Uh, Jesus picked up all authority. He delegated it to his church. But just look at the headlines this past week. Look at Vegas. Look at the wars. Look at the rumors of wars. Look at the trafficking industry. Look at the pornographic industry. Where's the discrepancy between the power and the authority and the freedom that Christ has given his soldiers of light and life and the headlines that we read in the papers? If Satan has been rendered a toothless bulldog, all bark, no bite, then why is he still wielding so much influence and destruction? Satan has lost all authority. But he still has power. But his power is only that in which we give him. Satan wields a power of manipulation and deception. And the power that he has only manifests into this world. The power that he has only manifests into the windows of opportunity that he has in this world when somebody chooses to give him that authority in their lives. So the fourth observation about authority is this. Satan now wields his power to cause us to relinquish our God-given authority. And how does he do that? He's the master of deception, the master of manipulation, the father of lies, and he does this by feeding us with lies. And when we believe those lies, we give him an opportunity to wield his influence in our heart and mind and thought pattern and actions. He's not creative. He's crafty, but not creative. Satan has never created anything in his entire existence. All he does is steal and twist and manipulate. And his bag of tricks is fourfold when he attacks Christians. And his objective in attacking Christians is to get us to stop living in our freedom and our authority over the darkness and to cause us to step out from the umbrella of God's authority so that we can no longer function with authority over him and the darkness. Did you guys see that? All authority has been given to us, and his influence in our life is to get us to step out from underneath God's authority so that we no longer have authority over him and over our oppression and over our bondage and over the darkness in this world. I'm grateful for Christians who are politically conscious and are active in the political realm to take back society, but I just say that to preface this statement. The real authority to take over a culture is in revival. It's in hearts being transformed. It's in the spirit of Christ spreading through a community like wildfire. We have all authority as followers of Jesus Christ. And so Satan's primary target, again, is to get followers of Jesus Christ who have all authority and power to step out from underneath the umbrella of God's authority in their life so that that delegated authority is diminished. Because as Jesus operated, though he had all inherent power as God, he put that inherent power on the shelf with the incarnation. And the authority and power that he operated in was the delegated authority and power from his Father through the Spirit because he lived in complete submission to the Father. 
And now Christ has picked that authority back up through the cross, burial, and resurrection, and through the Spirit of Christ delegated to His church. And now our authority, guys, is not inherent. It is not in and of ourselves. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, if you stay under this umbrella of authority, you'll bear much fruit, you'll have joy, you'll pray, your prayers will be answered. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you step out from underneath this umbrella of authority, and now you're no longer functioning in this delegated authority, you have no inherent authority of your own to conquer your addictions, to live in joy, to live in freedom, to shine so bright that people around you want to come to Christ. So Satan, again, his main objective to followers of Jesus Christ, to the church, though he can't have our soul, is to render our delegated authority null and void by getting us to step out of alignment from his authority over our lives. And he does this through a fourfold pattern. He's not creative. He's ridiculously predictable. But he's wickedly skilled at this particular pattern in our lives. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. Desire. Satan first and foremost attacks a good, noble, God-given, God-honoring desire in our lives. Is that not what he did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God gave her a desire to eat of the trees of the garden. It's a good desire. It's a God-given desire. It was a God-honoring desire. And so he focused on that desire. And he does the same thing for us. God gives us desires. And he, Satan attacks those desires and he contorts them and he twists them. And he gets us to focus on satisfying those desires outside of God's will, love, watch, care, timing. That's where the deception comes in. Satan, after he focuses on our God-given desires and stimulates those desires, he then deceives us. And he tempts us to distrust God's love, wisdom, and power to satisfy that desire. Is that not what he did with Eve in the garden? He said, did God really say, causing her, as we talked about last week, to question God's goodness and altruistic love? Did God really say? And then the reason that God doesn't want you to do this is because he's holding out on you. This was the thought process that Satan enticed Eve to believe. So Satan attacks our desire, a good, noble, God-given, God-honoring desire. And then he begins to deceive us to distrust God's love, wisdom, and power to satisfy that desire in our life. You have this desire. But look, it's not satisfied yet. So you better make it happen yourself. You better seize this window of opportunity now. You better escape into the world and satiate that desire now. And that brings us to the next level, and that's disobedience. Satan entices us to satisfy that desire outside the boundaries of God's will. And there's a saying, if you sow an act... You'll reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you'll reap a character. If you sow a character, you'll reap a destiny. And he's now trying to get us to sow a thought, to sow a desire, to sow an act outside of the covering of God's will. And this brings death. Physical death, 
Sometimes it's physical death. I've seen, I've officiated funerals of followers of Jesus Christ, my close friends, who were so deceived by Satan that they stepped out of God's will and began satiating desires outside of God's love and watch care and protection and wisdom. And they began living a pattern of disobedience, and it cost their very lives. And even if it doesn't cost your immediate physical death, it costs an immediate emotional death. A death of joy, a death of God's will in your life, a death of God's destiny upon your life, a death of God's authority upon your life, a death of God's momentum behind you. And that creates a stronghold in your life, a foothold in your life. A stronghold is an area of disobedience, it's a pattern of thinking, it's a pattern of believing. It's a pattern of desiring. It's a pattern of behaving outside of the umbrella of God's authority that Satan has us locked into. He had no power over our lives, but we handed it to him. When we allowed him to entice our desires and distract us and distrust God's love and disobey God and satiate that that desire outside of God's authority and watch care, and that brought death into our lives. And this is why the headlines look like they do. This is why the headlines are filled with catastrophes rather than revivals. This is why the church feels helpless and feels they must outsource their culture's morality to Washington. This is why Christians are secretly uh, engrossed into these sin patterns. It's because Satan has a stronghold, a foothold in their life. I've been rock climbing. When you're rock climbing, you're scaling the side of the cliff. And all you need, guys, all you need, you would think you'd need a big ledge to stand on. All you need is just a little rivet in the side of the cliff to lock your fingers in. A little rivet to put your toes and to pull yourself up. That's all you need, just a foothold. And all Satan and all his demons need to get followers of Jesus Christ to function outside of their authority, and they have no inherent authority of their own, so he can keep them in bondage is just a little foothold. Just a little area of disobedience. So, there's many footholds. There's many areas of bondage. There's many areas of strongholds that followers of Jesus Christ find themselves in. I found this in God's kingdom, that if you sow a seed in this field, you might reap the harvest in another field. It's really awesome. Sometimes I go back to West Texas to visit, and I drive by all these fields, these cotton fields. The thing about the natural kingdom is that if you sow in this field, you will reap a harvest in this field. If you sow in this field, you're not going to reap a harvest five miles away. You're going to reap a harvest in the field that you sowed in. In God's kingdom, if you sow in one field, 
perhaps a blessing, a benevolence, tithes and offerings, whatever it might be. You'll reap a harvest in another field entirely. There's times we've gone out, Brandy, Victoria, and Jabez and I, we've gone out inviting kids to youth and after school around campuses. We invited so many kids to youth and none of those kids came, but wouldn't you know it, there's a handful of brand new kids we never saw. Why is that? Because in God's kingdom, you sow in one field through obedience, you'll reap perhaps sometimes in a completely different field. And it's really awesome. But you sow, you will reap in God's kingdom. You'll reap later than you sow, and you'll reap more than you sow. And it's awesome. The kingdom of darkness is the same way. You sow an area of disobedience in this arena, whether it's harboring bitterness, you will reap a harvest of destruction and a stronghold in this arena, perhaps a loveless marriage. You reap an area of disobedience in this arena, perhaps unfaithfulness with tithes and offerings, and you'll sow a stronghold in this arena, perhaps a roadblock in your vocation. You sow an area of disobedience in this arena, perhaps lust or pornography, and you'll reap a stronghold in another arena. And in reality, if there's a stronghold in your life, if there's a, an area of bondage in your life, I believe that the Holy Spirit is active and vibrant and you know why. If you're experiencing a stronghold, an area of bondage here, I believe you know how you've stepped out of God's authority so that that area of disobedience took root in your life. And Satan got that foothold in your life. So, how to break free from strongholds and begin walking in the authority of Christ. And now we are in Colossians. And I'm going to walk through these quickly, but I encourage you to pick up an outline on your way out and walk through this slowly throughout the week. Read through these truths. Reread these truths. Colossians 1. And it's so key that we begin here, guys. It's so key that we begin here. If there's an area of bondage in your life, then you might just think, gosh, I want to go to church. I want to do a bunch of good deeds. But that's legalism. That's religion. And to think about legalism and religion, we're going to read in Colossians. The more you like try to walk in freedom by not doing this bad and doing more of this good, then you'll eventually get worn out and fall into sin. And the latter condition will be worse than the first. So it's really critical that we follow God's pattern first. Embrace your identity in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And we read, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. You are in Christ. You're a Christian. If you've trusted in what Christ has done for you on the cross to make you heaven-bound, to make you His child, if you've trusted in the atonement, in Christ's work for you on the cross, in His substitutionary work, He paid the price of your sins when He died. If you've trusted in the cross of Christ, then watch this. You are with Christ, and He has forgiven all your trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
He set aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed. Did you see that? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame. That means that because of your identity in Christ, because you've trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit is now in your heart, then that prison door is now flung wide open. He's disarmed the authorities that once oppressed you. He's disarmed the authorities that once held you in bondage. The gates are flung wide open. And if you sit in that prison, if you remain in that bondage, it's not because you have to, it's because you choose to, because you've disregarded your identity in Christ. And this is your identity in Christ right now because you're in Christ. Listen to this. Because you're in Christ right now without going out and doing a whole bunch of good works, without going out and refraining from a whole bunch of bad works, right now because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is no authority over you other than Christ. There's no dark authority over you. And secondly, you were forgiven. You were forgiven. There's no debt, the Bible says. The debt's been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. What does that mean? What's a debt? A debt is something that you have to climb out of in order to be free. There's no debt. There's nothing you have to climb out of in order to be free. You are forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. When Christ looks at you, he doesn't see a sin. He doesn't see something in your past. He doesn't see something that you're ashamed of. He doesn't see something that people say about you. When he sees you, he sees that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And the first step to walking in freedom, to having no strongholds and no bondage in your life, is to stop trying to climb out of a moral debt and to know that because of Jesus, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Let's praise him. And because of that, right now, you can experience intimacy with Christ. First is embrace your identity in Christ. You are forgiven. Second, embrace intimacy with Christ. You don't have to run from God like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. You don't have to hide from God. If we run from God, if we hide from God, that's condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Condemnation causes us to run from intimacy with our, in our relationship with God and to run deeper into our sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His arms are wide open. You're forgiven. He doesn't see your sin. He loves you. And he knows that the only thing that's going to satisfy your heart is not the sin pattern or pattern of believing that Satan has duped you into. The only thing that's going to satisfy your heart is intimacy with him, a relationship with him. You're forgiven. There's no moral obligations to climb out of. His arms are open wide. And he says, return to me. Return to your first love. Let's read about it in verse 16. Verse, we'll just read a bit through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What is this? This is all religious stuff. This is all law stuff. This is all legalistic stuff. You think, but I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not Jewish. I don't really know much about the Mosaic law and all this. We're still legalistic to the core in our flesh. We think, I need to do this religion in order to be loved by God and to climb out of a moral debt. Forget about that. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on, on, on worship of angels and going in detail about visions and being puffed up with reason of a sensuous mind. See, this is talking about strongholds. It's a sensuous mind. How to be free from this. And, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, this is Christ, knit together through its joints and ligaments grows. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? And the world is very legalistic. If Satan can't turn you into an axe murderer, no problem. He'll just make you a legalistic. If Satan can't turn you into a pimp and prostitute, no problem. He'll just make you a legalistic church member. It all keeps your heart cold and distant from God. Verse 21. It goes like this, religion. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referencing to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do this, do this, do this. It looks wise. But it's self-made and religious. And it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, we read. Religion. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh and a sensual mind. What does? A relationship with Christ. A living, breathing, dynamic, communicative, growing relationship with Christ. Where you seek Him. And He's a rewarder, Scripture says, of those who diligently seek Him. Where you abide in Him and you experience joy in your heart. Where you don't read your Bible because you're supposed to, but you read your Bible because you long to get closer to your friend. You want to know Him. And this is how we walk in freedom. One, embrace your identity in Christ. Second, embrace intimacy with Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's a relationship. Thirdly, embrace integrity in your mind. We read on in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. Where the mind goes, there the man will eventually go. But I can't control my mind. It just, I mean, goes right there. Yeah, all of our minds do. None of us have any control of our mind if we are not embracing our identity in Christ. I am forgiven and I am loved. And I am growing in an intimate relationship with Christ. And as this relationship with Christ satisfies our hearts, then our mind is subdued and we can take our thoughts captive and set them on holy things and we worship and we pray and it's not just that we have to think about being an angel in the clouds playing a harp and being bored for all of eternity no 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 as C.S. Lewis said it's not that our desires are too too weak our desire or it's not that our desires are too strong our desires are too weak let Christ fan into flame your desires for his kingdom to save souls to stand upon the promises of God to trust in Christ And then, next, we've got to surrender our daily life to Christ. You've got to surrender your daily life to Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 through 11. And we read, 
We'll start in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. It goes on and on. Many Christians are living in bondholds of chemical addictions. There's marital bondholds. There's sexual bondholds. There's emotional bondholds. There's food strongholds in our life. But when we embrace our identity in Christ, we're forgiven. And our heart is satisfied in Christ through a daily relationship with Him. And we set our minds on things above. Then the Spirit in us subjects and subdues our flesh. And we have dominion over our flesh rather than our flesh having dominion with us. And we live in surrender to Christ every day. And when you live and surrender to Christ every day, you function in the authority that Christ has given you. If you're in surrender to Christ every day, total surrender, and the devil has no foothold in your life, then you're a policeman in the street that goes like this, and cars stop. You encourage somebody, and their heart's encouraged. You pray for somebody, and miracles happen. You share your faith, and people come to Christ. Because you're in complete surrender to Christ. But the moment Satan gets that foothold, you step out on the street and you go like that and the cars whip right past you and almost run over you. And that is so sad to see Christians live like that. Or to see a church being run over by the world. Because Satan has strongholds in their individual lives. And then, you've got to embrace community. You have to embrace community. Verse 12 through 15, and it talks about, guys, we've got to get together. We've got to love each other, encourage one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. This is community. It's the body of Christ. We had our membership class this morning. We had a great group, and uh, man, it started out with community, and some, somebody mentioned a struggle and something that was kind of a secret. And the only way that Satan has power in our lives is if we keep that a secret. But the moment you speak it, the power dissipates. And then the body of Christ prays over you and you walk in freedom. It was a beautiful display of community. And we're not just called to sit next to one another. We are called to get into one another's lives and encourage one another to to draw closer to Christ. And then finally, do everything you do to please Christ. Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Do all things with all your heart for Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Well, we've got a lot to talk about as, as the series unfolds in terms of how to suit up in spiritual warfare as we go into the armor of God. But today, well, let's praise the Lord. But today, if there's an area of bondage in your life, Leave here in freedom. Leave here in freedom. And here's your action step this morning. I just want to encourage you to embrace your identity in Christ and recommit to satisfying your heart through intimacy with Christ. And there's an outline on the way out. Grab that and go over these verses slowly this week. But embrace your identity in Christ. You're forgiven. And just spend some time thanking the Lord for that identity. And then make a commitment to seek God to return to your first love and satisfy your heart in Christ through intimacy with Christ. 
The flesh is so drawn to this world like a magnet. The flesh will never satisfy your soul. It will only make your soul more and more thirsty and more and more miserable as you go deeper and deeper into the quagmire of a stronghold and bondage. Embrace your identity in Christ. Don't try to climb your way out of a moral obligation. You are forgiven because of the cross of Christ. Now, you are free to satisfy your heart in Christ. Seek Him. Seek Him with all your heart. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Return to your first love. Totally surrender your life to Christ and you will live with complete authority from on high. Unlimited authority from on high. Perhaps you've been living in the shadows of a mountain that's been blocking your path for so long that's just normal for you. Jesus wants to move the mountain. He set you free. He wants you to live in freedom. You can live in freedom, but you've got to embrace your identity first. Because of Christ, because of the cross, you are free. Free to hold your head up, free to pray with boldness, free to walk in authority, free to pray and expect mountains to move, free to seek Christ and satisfy your heart in a relationship with Him. The only one who can satisfy your heart. So would you bow your heads with me? So I wonder how many of you guys realize that you're in spiritual bondage this morning. Just raise your hand up. I'm always so grateful for y'all's honesty and vulnerability. Now I just want to encourage you to come to the altar and totally surrender that foothold to Christ. Totally surrender it. And thank Him for your identity. You are free. You are forgiven. You are loved. And then commit to satisfying your heart in Christ. All right, let's respond.